Welcome back to Hearness, Contemporary Art Practices for Connecting Body, Place and Space. At Hearness, we acknowledge the deep connection to land and waters by First Nations people all around the world. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Breenlovett, and this month we are honoured to be speaking to artist Honey Ryan. Honey is based between Europe and the Blue Mountains, Australia, and she works across multiple countries, creating mindful encounters, deep listening to place, social sculpture, and contemplative performances. I've always really enjoyed a deep sense of peace in Honey Ryan's work, and I invited her on the show to hear a little bit more about her intention behind her work and her practice. What I was interested to begin to speak to you about is your silent dinner parties that happens in a semi-public place but also has happened in people's homes uh, where different people come together for a meal and everybody has their full dinner in silence. I just wanted to ask you, what was your Mm. intention? Mm. Um, at the beginning, I started doing the silent dinners when I was living in Germany. I was studying. I was an exchange student. I guess it was a reflection of my own kind of behaviour in social environments because obviously I was living somewhere where um, I didn't speak the language, at least fluently. I was also st- I was studying um, experiential design at the time, so I was looking at designing experiences as artworks and I started thinking about how we can bring people together um, and suggest or request or encourage different types of behaviors that could change our experience of place and of each other and of the world. And do you find that that people behave differently in the different countries where you've where you've had the silent dinner parties? Definitely. There's, there's two sides to it. There's one side to the project where it reveals a kind of base elements of a kind of, you know, base humanity that we share across cultures. Um, and on the other side, it celebrates cultural difference. Uh, food, obviously, being one of the foremost expressions of culture helps to, you know, place the performance in each environment and it it gives the performance a structure as well so 
you know, in a time of day and, and a certain set of expectations and obviously colours and smells and sensory input that um, is local to the place. So my menus are always uh, in dialogue with the traditional kind of uh, kitchens or cooking or foods um, of that place. And yeah, I've done them in, I think, 15 or 16 countries now. And, and so there has been some vast variations in, in the shape and, and, uh, and the, the form and the expression of the performance. But on the other hand, there's also been a very, there's, there is a through line, a similarity that we can see emerging throughout the uh, body of work. So that's kind of beautiful, really. I think it shows how we can be bound together through our differences. Yeah, and like, what are the, some of the commonalities that you find across the different cultures? Um, mainly that they're, that they're fun, that people enjoy, and that um, it becomes a convivial space. And this uh, decision to enter into this experience together forms a kind of bond, a strong, a really strong bond, like people create very intimate relations very quickly, much more quickly than I would say in normal dinner environments with strangers. And there's a certain curve to the evening that's always similar. So the performance goes for a minimum of two hours. And um, that's there so that we, you kind of push through that initial discomfort, but the initial discomfort that people experience is, is pretty common. It, it usually to always happens. Um, but I think it's a really interesting space where people can be together in a space that they're not comfortable and not try and escape it. Just sit in that discomfort and that not knowing and that space of, of vulnerability, ultimately. It's a very vulnerable, very exposed space without our words to mask us and to, to hide behind. So as a group of people coming together for the first half hour, there's a lot of, of that, those feelings, those very kind of anxious energies and discomfort and everybody sort of checking what everybody else is doing. Then it moves into fun. Then people start realizing, hey, we're all in this together. Everybody is actually feeling the same. Everyone's committed to the same things and we're, we're here, we're doing this. There have been emotional responses. There, there have had a lot of people kind of, you know, cry or engage in quiet stillness together and uh, interact in a, on sort of profound unspoken levels um, as well. I would say that that's more rare than the more extroverted convivial kind of uh, response to the situation. Um, but it still does happen across, it's happened across quite a few cultures. Um, before I experienced one, I imagined that it would be more contemplative silence while they're eating. I didn't expect it to be so fun, <laughs> which, was, <laughs> which was a nice surprise. Um, and then yeah. I think the exercise of kind of watching people on the spectrum of behaviours, um, mm. some people taking it very seriously and, and some people being very, very silly as well. Um, mm -hmm. Interesting watching the behaviours and then seeing how do you moderate your behaviour according to the different people that you're with. 
Yeah, it's interesting because I think I think I definitely try and encourage um, interaction as opposed to an aloneness in the silence. The um, the possibility to sit together in isolation in silence is is a little bit more common. I think that's like you get that on meditation retreats or different other other different kinds of spiritual environments where you may eat together without speaking, but it's encouraged that you. Um, develop kind of individualism within the group whereas what I am trying to do more through the silent dinners is actually place that silence in the space between people so I mean I would always give a very warm and physical welcome to the guests if possible and try and encourage yeah uh, interaction eye contact and um engagement with each other so people can do whatever they want but they come into the environment willing and witting um, and knowing that they're entering into a certain type of of scenario that they get to then co-create through their own behaviors yeah i think the link between this work and another one of your works um the mindful encounters work where you Mm -hmm. have um, instructions on the way that you interacted with new friendships and then now there's also these instructions that other people could carry out if they wanted to practice cultivating a mindful encounter in a new friendship or relationship i mean the mindful encounters was um the creation of four friendships as you said um new friendships so people i didn't know before uh intentionally as you know, we, we stepped into it intentionally saying, okay, we're creating this friendship as an artwork. So I think that's an important distinction. Um, and it was a time exchange project. So the, the parameters of mindful encounters was, um, I offer you eight hours of my time to do whatever you want, need, or would like to see more of in the world. And in return, I ask for eight hours of your time to engage with me in mindful activities. And the friendship that we build is the resulting artwork of the, um, is the, you know, is the outcome of the performance. So it was, technically it was a 16 hour performance shared between two people with a relational outcome. Um, And I did that with four people over about two years, a two year period, then sort of published different outcomes, um, installation, work, uh, writing, photographs, and um yeah the the potential like the offering for other people to do that if they so choose yeah because there's i think on your website there's also a little summary or an account of the the way that these mindful encounters unfolded with the different friendships um Mm -hmm. and it's interesting to read how different people reacted to the to the different requests that you had of them Mm -hmm. um i guess i was wondering what did you learn about the the use of the the mindfulness or the silence in creating the friendship did it make a different type of friendship to to what would normally be made with conversation yeah we used a bunch of different um kind of what i would call techniques for mindfulness um so there was silence but there was also repetition and uh, endurance and um stillness yeah it's about awareness basically like 
turning something like a friendship into an artwork, like making that intentional decision to turn something that's your everyday life into an artwork is a kind of similar process to the process of applying these mindful techniques to your um, everyday life, or it can be. Um, and that is that it creates a heightened awareness. And I guess that makes sense because mindfulness can be synonymous with, with awareness uh, as, a, as a word and as an action and as a result. So it's got an element of open-endedness, but ultimately it exists within a particular frame. So I think the, the learnings for me were, were about that kind of structuredness, that structure for um, creating a certain type of awareness that leads you to, um, yeah, deep engagement, mm. that leads you to a kind of deep engagement with ideas, people, place, it, within the moment and within the process, which can be quite difficult because you're, you know, you're also engaging with all the other elements and the fact that you're doing something and all the irregularities of daily life. But the fact that you know that you're doing it as a performance and as a performance in awareness kind of gives you the permission in a way to open yourself up to a different kind of sensory perception, a different kind of in, in, intuition somehow mm. um, that forms really strong bonds. I guess I'm imagining the connection is, I guess I want to say pure, but the connection is kind of untainted by all of the personality stuff. It's like an energetic connection or something. Did it, did it ever feel like that with people? It did. It did with some. It obviously changed with different people and with the environment. Like some of them were done in, um, you know, incredible national park or, beautiful natural environments where there's a lot of space for that kind of thing to happen and other ones were done in in crazy busy cities where you know the elements are there whether you choose to have them or not so you're juggling even if you are trying not to juggle mm. it was london um city california like epic countryside um, my hometown at the time was uh, the Blue Mountains in Australia, which was the third one, and the fourth one was New York City. So yeah. it's quite a diverse set of environments that we engaged with. And I do think that the environments um, played a huge part in, in the development of, of the uh, friendships, but also of the, the you know, the, the pieces, because the people, so each one also had to kind of suggest what they wanted to do with eight hours. And then I kind of, that was my process of curating the work, I guess, was that I chose kind of what activities I wanted to do with other people. So they all had a, a kind of output that was in line with a certain way of thinking. They either had an environmental kind of line, educational line, or a, um, a like a performative line. And the one which was in California... That's where you, you, you've got the water performance? That's right, yep. So that one was called The Passage of Water and we were looking at the, in, like the ensuing drought in California and the use of, um, of water in the area because they would basically siphon water from the top of the Sierra Mountains, which is where she lived, this woman, Cara, and um, they would siphon it in these huge pipes down to LA and to Vegas. And that was uh, how they irrigated and how they got their water to like the drier areas of the state. And 
they were coming up to a period of drought. So we wanted to look at a kind of, um, Cara's suggestion was that we looked at, um, or we did sort of guerrilla theatre, um, enacting or educating people about the, the passage of water from the top of the mountains down to um, the different cities and to sort of bring attention or awareness to um, the limitations of that. Yeah, it's interesting where the the line in your work crosses between the, the mindful social sculptures or the personal interactions that become the artworks and then mm. into these political spaces as well, or environmental political spaces. Is it a conscious decision to knit these things together or does it just evolve that way in different kind of manifestations as you go along, depending on where you are? I think it evolves quite naturally. Often the social or the personal, as we know, becomes the political very quickly, um, especially when it's stepped into action. So a lot of it's just been responding to the needs of the place and the space and that can very quickly and easily become a sort of broader political concern um, activated then through the social interactions or the relational interactions that are set up in the performances. Yeah, because I'm like thinking about the work along the well 2015 that you created at Woodford Academy in the Blue Mountains mm -hmm. that had a similar imagery of pouring water from one vessel to another and also drawing mm -hmm. awareness to the history of water on the site as well. That one emerged really from a very intuitive process of just being present in the, in the, on the site and responding to a kind of feeling um, of stagnation that I had at the Woodford Academy. I had this intent, incredible feeling of stagnation um, when I was on site in the kind of homestead that's now a museum and has had a very, very you know, diverse history. Um, and I was drawn like, I was just so drawn to the surrounding land, to the area just outside and behind the academy. And I found myself exploring that when I was doing my site visits. Um, and then of course I learned uh, that the water had been dammed underneath the back. Um, so there was water, there was a natural spring or a couple of natural springs on, on the site just behind the Woodford Academy. Um, that were, you know, a, a very important historical sacred indigenous site, um, which were also probably the same reason why the settlers chose that site as one of their first sites for building because they could, they, they had water there. So it was connecting with a kind of, um, you know, timeless or ageless sort of, human aspect of going to water. I created a, a walking piece that followed the original path of water along the land just behind the homestead. We started by gathering in the museum, talking a little bit about the history of the place. And then we all wrapped ourselves in, in white um, shawls. And we drank some water and we held water in our hands. We walked along the kind of dried waterbeds that you know, or and across other significant sites on the uh, property. And we spent some time walking and we spent some time standing still, basically 
acknowledging the significance of the place with our presence and with our silence. I think it's of important, um, I think it's important to kind of acknowledge that the walks were silent because it was a, it is an important Indigenous site and it's not, um, you know, my place to kind of lead that or talk about that. And so that's, that was a part of the uh, Indigenous board of the Blue Mountains um, uh, Council's decision to allow the peace to happen was because it, they were in silence. So we were walking silently through these landscapes. And then, yeah, back to Homestead, where, as you say, people were standing on top of, like, the, the, the well, the dammed water, the, the stopped water, the stagnant water, and pouring one sort of finite vessel of water. Three men were standing together pouring that from one vessel to the other kind of um, for quite a long time. So it became quite a hypnotic uh, experience um, for them. In the landscape, there were also people standing on top of significant sites silently, um, just acknowledging the significance of the site with their presence. And the act of walking was also, it was about communing with the land. It was about the act of you know, being in motion with the land. And it was also about the act of working together as a group because it's something that we, we did together as a, as a unit, each kind of walk, each of the four groups or five groups were a, a unit somehow. Um, and I'm, I'm always interested in how we can bring these practices into uh, group dynamics, like how we can work together with these practices because there seems to be a lot of spaces where we can cultivate an individual sense of awareness. And I'm interested in moving that individual sense of awareness into a group sense of awareness. And I think walking together, being in the same, being in a rhythm together, um, it's a very natural rhythm and a rhythm that we can kind of, you know, find in, within a group. So it was about the communication within a group as well. And then I guess that links into the, the work that you did in Lahore in Pakistan, the Walking Presence 2016, where quite a large group of people were walking through parts of Lahore that I understand it's not kind of commonplace for people to walk around the streets and especially women to be free to walk around the streets. And that, that work, and it was also done in silence, is that, that right? That's right, yep. Um, walking Presence, which, which was a group of, uh, a series of group walking performances through the urban landscape in Lahore in Pakistan. Yeah, the, the, the guidelines or the parameters for that walk were, well, they were led by local women, most importantly, and they were, as you say, about uh, investigating the complexities of being a body in public space, um, especially for women, where it's difficult for women to be uh, walking through the through the city with no reason. The Pakistani cities are full of people on the street. They're very busy. They're very vibrant places. But there's certainly a sense that um, you you can't be there with nothing to do. It's um, you you have to be there for a purpose. Um, and that idea of just being a citizen of a city and the city being your space and the city being a space that you can inhabit in the ways that you use is uh, got a lot of kind of complexity attached to it. Mm. So um, we dressed in white. We 
met in a central area. We didn't uh, consume anything, so eat, drink, smoke or buy anything. We didn't use any digital technologies um, and we thought about our reciprocal relationship to the city. So how we give to the city every day and how the city gives to us. And we walked together through a predefined route actually that had been developed that I sort of worked on with a, a um, urban think tank, a group of urbanists called OCO in Lahore who had sort of helped me to discover the, the city and understand it. And the other way I had sort of um, researched and investigated the city was through walking in the city with women. So I would organize before the big group walks, I would organize smaller group walks um, with other women and sometimes with men, but predominantly with women uh, to, you know, understand the kind of, um, well, I called it subjective geographies. So it was understanding the city through the subjective experience of its inhabitants. So through the stories, through the uh, yeah, opinions, approaches, um, experiences of people I walked with. So, I mean, a lot, that project, you know, a lot came of it, but walking presence was probably the kind of main performative outcome. And, um, and it was, yeah, definitely about, the sense of active listening to to the place. So we talked at the beginning of the walk, we talked about listening with all of our bodies, listening with all of our senses and um, maintaining that kind of openness to uh, the things that we would normally try and block out. So in a sense to kind of reverse an urban numbing that comes in most city environments where we need to block off um, receiving all of that information into our bodies because it's too overwhelming or it's too much um, proliferated in the way that we wear headsets and we kind of, you know, really move through the cities in a very individuated, um, isolated space now. And the interesting, I think, thing there is that a procession in white in Pakistan is a funeral um, and funerals are not attended by women. So even though the sight of seeing a group of people walking through the streets dressed in white would not be uncommon, the fact that um, it was led by women and that like a, at least half of the people were female would have been, you know, cause to question by an onlooker. And that was the question that we wanted them to ask, what are the women doing here in this environment? It's a huge learning experience for me going, into these new cultures and just trying to um, provide space for whatever's needed or trying to respond to whatever's needed and to walk in sort of openly asking a question instead of um, or instead of you know presupposing things and then trying to be able to suggest a methodology based on the based on awareness based on um, different kinds of perception mm. that can engage with these questions yeah it must be an incredible amount of research and time spent considering the action to take before before the work even takes place and then the logistics of organizing it all and but it's so 
the documentation of it, it's incredibly powerful. And I just wonder, because there's a publication as well. Um, yep, for that, for that one, there's a book. Great. They're in circulation more in South Asia than in Australia or Europe or different places. But you can read it on, online. It's if you go to my website and you go to Urbanities Pakistan or to the Walking Presence Project, you can find a link for a book called We Walk Lahore, which has a lot of the documentation and, and research outcomes of, the, uh, of that project. One of the really interesting things for me about the project is how did it change the perception of the streets by the women that were walking or, and the people that were walking. And I think the, the publication recounts some of their feelings during the walk is that is that right that's right yep a lot of it is um unedited first-hand uh responses and contributions by the participants um usually just after a walk so we one of the main ways i would document would just be to ask people to either talk or write down their feelings after and their experiences after um after one of the walks so all of those um Responses are, or not all of them, but a selection of those responses are available in, in, the, in the book. I'm interested in the idea of you working in these places all around the world that are different, or I think, I think you've called it in one of your writings, the hybrid space between cultures. Um, one, one of your works called Fleeting Fears, I think you created, created in 2013 when you had been preparing to travel to Beirut um, but you hadn't been able to because of the unrest there and the intention for peace that you had um, behind the creation of that work. Could you, do, could you talk a little bit about how you came to think of making that work and what did it, I get, what was the process of intention behind that? Mm. How did you carry that out? Sure. That was a very personal, very almost private performance um, that I did publish. Um, and it, uh, it grew out of, yeah, I, I was meant to be heading to an artist residency there in, in Beirut and, uh, and I was, wasn't able to go, as you said, because of political unrest and things got a bit hairy and the program got postponed. So, um, it was funny. It, it came from domestic chores. <laughs> I was living in Berlin at the time and uh, I was washing dishes in in a house that I was sharing with some other people and my flatmate had eaten like a bunch of these little puddings that you buy at the supermarket and they come in glass jars and he must have eaten like a hundred of these puddings because the, the recycling bin was just full of them and so I was washing dishes and I've looked at the recycling bin and I was like okay, there's something about these little jars and I sort of collected them and started washing them and, and putting them aside. And I had, I think I was meant to leave for Beirut in 16 days. So I took 16 of the, of the vessels and, um, and I put them on my desk and I decided to use each day as, you know, a way to um, connect with, the conflict and the pain that was and the suffering that was happening it was uh it was around the time when lebanon was getting flooded with syrian refugees 
So every day I would pick up one of these little um, glass vessels and I would hold it in my hand. It would be sitting open upside down on my, on my desk and I would hold it in my hand and I would mentally project myself um, by visualizing a map of Lebanon and Syria and I would mentally project myself over the border between Lebanon and Syria and then I would sort of mentally try and travel down into that space to feel the space or to um, you know try and give some energy to the suffering that was happening there at that time. I would start to sort of receive all of these stories. I would I got some incredible visions. I got some really interesting, um, you know, quite some quite specific um, stories of, of of incidences that were happening. Um, sometimes they would just be feelings. Um, it would often, it would usually be full of content as opposed to the kind of meditation that's empty of content. It would be full of content. It would be full of feelings and associations and, and possibilities. And I would hold the cup in my hand to, to try and, I can't remember the exact parameters I put on myself now. I, I would have said something like to um, try and help ease the fear of a child uh, fleeing um, Syria for Lebanon now, something like that. And then I would put the cup down on the desk so that the opening was down on the desk to try and kind of contain that energy of, of uh, you know, wishing away someone's fear. And then as an art piece, I just, I kept the, uh, the vessels, the small glass vessels and exhibited them with a small story about how that had happened. Mm, it's beautiful. Did they gather condensation, the, the upturned glasses? They did. They did in my hand because my hands would get warm. So if you, if you look at that project, you get, I would photograph each vessel each day and some of them are quite full of condensation. So they would sort of steam up. There would be heat of, of body and heat of thought in there. Wow. So it's literally the heat that was from your hand at the time when you were holding it to do the intention. Yep. I like to call you, I don't know if you call yourself a peacemaker or through your work kind of engendering the power of silence and peace and what it can bring to you to use your work as a um, way of spreading peace is that is that an intention i i think it is definitely the the stuff about communication is definitely forwardly about kind of creating opportunities for non-judgmental communication or peaceful interactions um, or even as sort of preparatory experiences for being able to engage with ideas with with, with intentions of peace or without intentions of maybe personal gain or ego. I think, I mean, I, there's different practices of, that, I, that I have, personal practices that probably feed into my own ideas of, of the world and what's important. Um, but honestly, peace just seems like the most worthwhile thing to work for. Like when, I, when nothing really makes sense it makes sense to work towards peace. Yeah. And that's the simplest answer I can give to that question because I, I think there are other kinds of um, outcomes that happen through the process of the work. But if you kind of, for me, if you just have that, or if I have that as my um, base intention, then I can trust that 
I'm making decisions from that place. So if I put it there as like my base intention, then even if I'm wrong or even if I get it wrong or I make a cultural mistake or I, you know, I step on my own feet and I accidentally do something which happens all the time because, you know, intercultural relations are very fragile and changing and, you know, you can't always know. Um, so you make mistakes and that's difficult, but um, if I just keep my own intention, uh, if I just understand and trust that my own intention is um, towards peace, then hopefully I can maintain an open enough um, being and therefore practice that, that, um, that the work, even when it uncovers a misunderstanding, that misunderstanding also contributes to more knowledge and to peaceful um, outcomes, peaceful relations, and and yeah. So it's it's lovely of you to um, call me a peacemaker, but it feels more like um, like a, like I'm at the service of peace. I yeah, I we can definitely feel feel that um, and sense it and know it from looking. And experience, looking at your works and experiencing your work, um, is that is that part of a spiritual practice that you would say that you've kind of been growing over time, or um, where does that come from? Hmm. It's interesting because my art led me to Vipassana. I do I do do Vipassana meditation, um, uh, and it was through my research. So I started practicing the silent dinners and I started researching silence. And then I started researching where we find silence in society and culture. And, and it led me to do silent retreats. And that really led me to a whole, that just opened up a whole life practice ultimately, um, which, you know, incorporates performance, performance practice. Um, I think it's not so much about whether you have to, when working with meditation in, in general, it can be Vipassana or, or otherwise, but the, the longer um, Vipassana retreats, well, the Vipassana ones are the longer meditations that I've done. So they're like 10 day retreats where you remain in silence and you meditate for a number of hours a day. And you go in them to basically empty the mind of all the, all the stuff that, it is holding in order that new ideas can come. It's to create space for a new thing to emerge. It's interesting, isn't it? I guess it's that process of that process of kind of letting go rather than yeah. just constantly adding more and more and more thought into <laughs> into the layers of, you know, um, our existence. Mm. Yeah. I think it also allows us to connect with the essence of something. Mm. Like a process of reduction and, I, and simplicity. Um, and I, this idea of profound simplicity, and I think it's a much harder place to reach than, than a complex space where you add everything all the time. So that, that aspect certainly enters my performance practice where I work with, you know, reduction, taking things away, minusing, slowing down, shall we say sculpting by a means of a minus.
We hope you've really enjoyed this conversation with Honey Ryan. All links to her work, social media and references discussed in the show can be found on hearness.org, including information on the sound work for this month's episode, which comes from Weizen Ho, supported by Blue Mountain City of the Arts. Weizen is a movement and sound performance divisor who created the Prelude and Coda signature sounds for Hearness. We should leave you with this now to drift off into your own sense of Hearness, your body, your place and your space. Until next full moon, goodbye.